0: Uh, Take your bulletin and look at the scripture printed there. This morning's reading comes from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, You've heard of King Henry VIII, I'm assuming, right Anne Boleyn and some, the man who was quote unquote married to six women. King Henry VIII doesn't necessarily have the greatest reputation amongst Americans. I mean he was uh, you know he was Catholic, Roman Catholic, but then when he couldn't uh, get an annulment from Catherine of Aragon, he decided I'm going to start my own church and do all of this stuff. And, and over and over and over again, he just dealt with women the way he wanted to do. He's not a good guy. This is, of course, the heritage of, of the American people. We, we separate ourselves from the English king. But kings don't necessarily even have a, a good reputation for us in modern times. Now, certainly, when I say the name Kaiser Wilhelm, this is not someone that's like, oh yes, I know who Kaiser Wilhelm is. But for those that don't know who Kaiser Wilhelm was, he was the king of Germany right around the time of World War I. And Barbara Tuchman, in her book, The Guns of August, does this really interesting thing of kind of getting into the psyche of Kaiser Wilhelm. And and if you study it, and, and according to Barbara Tuchman, it's very fascinating, his insecurity, especially amongst his cousin who was the king of England and his cousin who was the king of Russia, is actually the very thing that drove the entire world into World War I. His insecurity, a king's insecurity, Literally leading millions upon millions upon millions upon millions to death. The war to end all wars as World War I is known. A king's insecurities. Are you kidding me? You know, the Bible doesn't have a great, uh, you know, in truth, kings in the Bible aren't necessarily known for great reputations. The first king that Israel ever knows is King Saul. And King Saul, just like Kaiser Wilhelm, is this insecure king, especially when he sees King David, who says, David has slain 10,000, Saul has slain thousands, and he sought to kill David because he was insecure over David and spent most of his life seeking to kill someone who he apparently loved. And even David, who, who eventually was to take the king, become the king of Israel after Saul. You know, we think of David as the man after God's own heart, but in truth, when you study David's life, he himself isn't even a good king. He's a terrible dad. He's a terrible commander in a lot of ways. and it, it is through his children that, that the country of Israel, the, the nation-state of Israel literally splits between Israel and Judah because of David's sin. Kings don't have the greatest reputation if we're being honest. Now, as Americans, we know this, and that's why we don't have a king. It's almost like we fall right into this, and I think, and it's a good thing, into this phrase. We understand this well as Americans. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We push away kings. We're democratic. We're republican. We elect our officials. Even George Washington... Right after the Revolution, Revolutionary War, when the generals of the, of the American army came to him and said, we're going to make you king, he basically said, get out of my presence. We are not a place where monarchy is going to reign. And so when he was elected president, he put himself willingly and said, I'm only going to serve two terms as presidents. And that's what he did. We as Americans despise kings. Yet here's the thing about it. Scripture is very clear We have a king. And that we need to bow the knee to the king. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Jesus when he began his ministry. Do you know what he said? Repent and believe. For the kingdom is at hand. Who is that king? It is Jesus. While we are reluctant to bow the knee. While we hesitate to say, I have a king and he is Lord. This is the most necessary thing as Christians that we have. We must bow the knee to the Lord. Whether you know it or not, it is fairly obvious from the reading from Matthew 21. That the people... Who are watching Jesus riding in on these on this donkey? They are praising their king. Hosanna to the son of David. That's king language. Hosanna to God. For here in their midst was Israel king. But here's the thing I want you to ask. What type of king is King Jesus? Is Jesus a king? worthy of our devotion and our allegiance. Is Jesus the one we can bow the knee to even as Americans? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And as I told you, the blank king, we're going to look at three different characteristics that Matthew 21 shows us about King Jesus as he's entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And it is my hope that as we Examine these characteristics, these three characteristics, that indeed we may bow the knee and proclaim Jesus as Lord. The first characteristics I want you to see this morning from our text is that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. That's the first thing. Well, while it certainly isn't the most profound of promises, Jesus sees his actions of riding, into, riding on a donkey as he's entering into Jerusalem as the fulfillment of a promise given by God through the prophet Zechariah some 500 years before this time. Of course, the writer of the gospel makes very clear note of this in verse 4. You can see this right there. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What makes this scene more interesting is that the people who had lined the streets to welcome Jesus also saw him as the promised king of Israel. They spread their cloaks and branches on the road, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This parade-like scene was common for this day and age, and it was usually associated with the welcoming back of a victorious king from battle. But Jesus wasn't returning from a battle, per se. He was seen by these people as the fulfillment of prophecies throughout Israel's history, especially concerning Israel's king, as was their quote, Hosanna to the Son of David. But indeed, there are more significant Themes about Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of the promised king that is to come. I I, I want to draw your attention away from this text just briefly. Because there's so many different ways, over 40 ways in which Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecies from which he is the king. In Micah chapter 5, it is said that the promised king would, would become from Bethlehem. And for those of you that know of anything of scripture knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In 2 Samuel 7, it is said that the promised king would be of the family and the lineage of Israel's king. And Jesus was indeed the adopted son of Joseph, a descendant of David. In Isaiah 7, it said that the promised king would be born of a virgin. And we know that Jesus himself was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It was said by the prophet Hosea that the promised king would be called out of Egypt. And if you don't know, that Jesus spent a portion of his childhood in Egypt. Indeed, like I said, 40 different prophecies fulfilled by Jesus as king in his life. And here's the point I'm trying to make. While we may be reluctant to bow to a knee to a king, we might not be so reluctant to bow to a king who is the fulfillment of promises over and over and over again. For in seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of all these promises there is a legitimacy to His kingship. And we must have a legitimate kingship to bow the knee. And seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies, this is what we have. Are you reluctant to bow the knee to Jesus? Well, the The beautiful thing about this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of promises that have happened hundreds of years before he has. And if you're reluctant to bow the knee to Jesus because you are reluctant, because you just, I don't know how legitimate he is as king. Well, the burden of proof actually rests on you rather than on Jesus. You have to show how Jesus didn't fulfill those prophecies. You have to show how those promises that were made hundreds of years before don't apply to Jesus. The burden of proof is on you if you're reluctant to say that Jesus is legitimate king. Indeed, this text shows us that Jesus is the promised king. We have to see this if we're going to bow the knee to Jesus. That Jesus is the legitimate king promised throughout scripture. And when we see this, we are ready and quickly to bow the knee. So that's the first characteristic of Jesus we see, that he is the promised king. But the second characteristic of Jesus that we see in this is that Jesus is the humble king. Jesus is the humble king. There are two aspects of Jesus' humility I want to draw out that our text points to us. The first is perhaps not so obvious. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the Gospel writer says in verse 10 that the city was stirred up as a result of his entrance. Now the word stirred up in the Greek is, a, is much stronger of a word than just stirred up. In the original language, it's the word esthiste. And this word is often associated with earthquakes. So when Jesus enters into the city, at its core, there is literally an earthquake. I mean, not earthquake, but literally the people are experiencing what is an earthquake. It's a revolutionary, big event happening Everyone in their heart of hearts is stirred up as Jesus is entering into this. And they say this, Who is this? Who is this? And what do the crowds say? Right there in verse 11. It says this, It is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. That's a very humble place. Why is it a humble place? It's, It's because of this. Nazareth of Galilee was a town some 90 miles north of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus grew up. It it, it was a community that was often looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem, the big city folk. At one point in the New Testament it is uttered, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We know that the Galileans had funny accents in this period of time. We know they were looked down upon because of their education. And I often wonder... Were they looked down upon by the way they dressed? We don't know. But but here's the thing I want you to see of this. Nazareth was seen by the sticks. So when the people reply that Jesus is from Nazareth, it's like hearing that there's a presidential candidate from Smackover, Arkansas. (laughs) Can anything good come out of Smackover, Arkansas? You, You see, Jesus comes from humble backgrounds. And this man of humble backgrounds is stirring up the city. Here he is. He's humble. Of course, that's the first aspect that I want you to see of his humility. The second aspect that I want you to see is that he's riding on a donkey. And of course, this is quite obvious because Zechariah in his his prophecy says that. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. As was mentioned earlier, This parade-like scene that we encounter is often associated with a victorious king returning from battle. But if you put any kind of thought to it, a a victorious king who's returning from battle is not riding a donkey who goes two miles an hour at most. He's riding a strong horse that's able to get to and fro as quickly as possible. But I want you to see this. Jesus is not riding that strong and quick horse. He's riding a meat. And lowly donkey. What is the point? As king, Jesus is not coming into Israel wielding a sword. But peace. He's not coming to try to turn things upside down. And as we'll see, there's a reason why he's not trying to turn up, you know, mount a revolution. But he is bringing Peace. And I want you to see this. He's not of pomp and splendor as we often associate with kings. He is a king who is meek and peaceful. A few days after Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on this donkey, Jesus finds himself in the upper room with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. During this meal, Jesus lays aside his outer garments and takes up a towel, tying it to his waist. He then grabbed a basin of water and began to wash the disciples' feet and drying it with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. When Jesus came to Peter, his rock, his leader, Peter took great offense, saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, in his mind, Peter thought, No, no, no. Kings have their feet washed. Kings don't wash feet. But Jesus replied to him, You know not what I am doing now. But after, you will. And Peter, remaining resolute and strong and prideful as ever, said, you shall never wash my feet. Why? Because in Peter's mind, a king is someone who's to be served. But Jesus, watching Peter's ignorance and his struggle, he responded, to them, responded to Peter this way, if I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Of course, the coin dropped in Peter's mind at that moment. And he started to see Jesus not as a king who's meant to be served, but as a king who's going to serve. And it hit him and he said, Okay, not my feet, but my all. I think we have a very hard time, in truth, if we're honest, with Jesus as the humble king. Like Peter, we think in our minds, okay, if we are going to serve a king, our entire allegiance is going to be to him and we're going to give our all and our everything to him. And in our minds, we cannot comprehend a humble king, one who comes with meekness and humility, one who's like someone from Smackover, one who's riding on a donkey, not on a steed, one who wants to serve you and me rather than be served. But here is where we we are faced with this king. Before we can serve our king, we need to be served by our king. This is the humility in which he comes. And so let me ask you this. How comfortable are you in being served by the king? If I'm honest, it's even hard for me to say that. How comfortable are you with being served by the king? But this is where we find ourselves. A king who's willing to serve us. A king that doesn't look for ways to stand out. A king that doesn't seek to be served, but to serve. A king that doesn't view people as objects to be used, but individuals to be loved. I think the greatest tragedy in the church is not our willingness to serve the king, but rather the willingness to be served by the humble king. What is your reluctance To serve a humble king. Is it below you? Well, this is who Jesus is. You want to know one of the reasons why we can bow the knees? Because Jesus is a humble king. And if we're true with ourselves, it's actually one of the most beautiful things about Jesus. That he humbles himself. I think it makes us want to serve him more. If you're reluctant to bow the knee to Jesus, I want you to remember that Jesus is the promised King. He's also the humble King. when we remember these things, we might be a little more ready to, to bow the knee to him. But there, there, there's a third characteristic of King Jesus that I want you to see in this text. And that is he's the crucified King. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what it would have been like to be in that crowd and to hear the shouting. And to see the palms waving and the coats going on the floor. I want you to imagine yourself there amongst the commotion. Amongst this city that is literally shaken to its core by the entering of this humble king. And I want you to see what, what, what you would have seen on Jesus' face as he's riding on that, on that donkey. What would you have seen on his face? I realize this is pure speculation and it all it, it, it's hypothetical. But I, I, I want to propose to you, the face on Jesus would be not of smiles and of, yes, thank you, but rather of grief and stoicism. Now, Why do I say that? Well, the Gospel of Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for a reason. In Matthew 16, verses 21 and 22, Jesus brings His disciples together and He shows them that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. It's the first time He tells them. Then in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus gathers His disciples again and says, The Son of Man, that is Himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. And then in Matthew 20, Surely before they go into Jerusalem, Jesus was going. He says this, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified." Which leads us back to Matthew twenty-one. Jesus entering into Jerusalem on this donkey, as we have read. Picture his face again. Reminding yourself of the things that he has already told the disciples. Why is he going to Jerusalem? What is the point of him going and beginning this time? It is that he would be crucified. And give his life as an offering for his people. Yet while his face may have been stoic, I want you to see this and I want you to know this. His heart was willing. And as you imagine this stoic Jesus riding on a donkey, I want you to see a king who is grieved by what has come upon him. A king willing to suffer for his people. Most kings demand of their people that they lay down their life for his crown. Let me say that again. Most Kings, if not all, demand of their people that they lay down their life for his crown. But in this moment, King Jesus is turning that notion on its head. He is willingly being led into Jerusalem to lay down his life for his people. This is what King Jesus is doing. This is the reality of Jesus' people. They aren't obedient. They're not strong. They're not always seeking His kingdom. In fact, they often seek treasonous activities. They're riddled with sin. And yet, Christ, knowing all of this, didn't come to bring judgment against His people, though He had every right to. But rather, He set His face towards Jerusalem that He might be judged in the place of them, giving His holy and righteous and perfect life for treasonous people. He is the crucified King. The Apostle Paul says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, my friends, as we behold Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the donkey, we must see the beginning of the crucified king on his way to give his life as a ransom for you and me. You may be reluctant to bow the knee to a king because you don't trust them. But it is far easier to trust a king who laid down his life for you. Is it not? Ultimately, the issue of a king is one of submission. Can you trust the one you are submitting to. When we see the crucified king, I don't know how you can't trust someone who willingly laid down his life for us, even in the midst of our treason. Listen, I can't blame you if you are hesitant to bow the knee to Jesus. But when you see this crucified king, it's a lot easier to get on your knees and praise him as Lord. What, how does this look? Well, when we're deciding which way to go, is it my way or is it His way? When we remember He laid down His life for us, we can definitely say, His way is better than my way. We wonder, is God's direction wiser than my own? Is God's plan for my life better than my own? Better than putting it into my hands? Of course it is. Of course it is. Our life as Christians is one constant fight to trust Him. And so how do we trust Him? Well, one, we can pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be their, Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can spend time together reminding ourselves that we are in submission to this great King who laid down His life for us. As we gather together in community groups, as we listen to, to different um passages of scripture pointing ourselves to this glorious crucified king who gave his life for us and serves us so well we bow our knees together and we remember him so my friends i want you to remember that if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved as paul has promised And my my hope this morning is that not only you would understand this phrase that Paul gives to us in Romans 10, but that you wouldn't be so reluctant to bow the knee to Jesus, our King. I get it. There's ample reason that you have in your life to be reluctant to do so. Can you really trust a King? I mean, the track record in humanity is not good. In fact, we've never seen a king in humanity worthy of our true submission, our life, our all, our everything. Until we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, the one who was the promised king, the one who was the humble king, the one who was the crucified king. When we see this Jesus, we bow the knee, willingly, willingly, Happily This my friends Changes everything Would you pray with me Lord we are Indeed so reluctant to bow the knee to you We think our way is better than your way And even when our way is not well We actually look to the The leaders of this world Our presidents, our mayors, our our Congress, our, our, our state um, government to, to, to direct us and to find hope. But the truth is, those, those people will always let us down. For they are just like us. They might have wisdom, but they don't have eternal wisdom. And so, Lord, I, I ask that that what what would be more clear than anything else from this preaching this morning is that you are the king and that you are worthy to be trusted, that you are the one that we can bow the knee to and find life and find peace and find hope. For you, Jesus, are our king. And you have been promised before time began. You are humble. And you gave your life for us. What a beautiful thing that is. We thank you. May we trust you. All the days of our life. Amen.